You're listening to the Perch Pod from Perch Perspectives. Hello, listeners, and welcome to another episode of the Perch Pod. As usual, I'm your host. I'm Jacob Shapiro. I'm also the founder and chief strategist of Perch Perspectives, which is a human-centric business and political consulting firm. Joining me on the podcast today is Andre Sushensov. Um, if you've been a longtime listener of this podcast, you know that Andre was actually one of the first guests that we had on the Perch Pod, and we're happy to invite him back on a year later to get his perspective from Moscow on things. Um, I've known Andre for a couple of years now. He is one of the best and most insightful analysts I know uh, looking at geopolitical issues out of Russia. Um, he's the director of the Laboratory of International Trends Analysis at the Moscow State Institute of International Relations. He's a program director at the Valdai Discussion Club. Uh, you can also find more. He's the president of Eurasian Strategies. He wears a lot of hats uh, and does a lot of good work. Um, if you um, if you can understand Russian or if you speak Russian, he also has been putting out some great videos on YouTube in Russian, of course, about his point of view on things. So you should check those out as well. Um, take care. Hope you're all doing well and see you out there. Cheers. Andre, thank you for uh, for joining us. Uh, listeners, this is round two. We had some technical difficulties on round one, so hopefully this time works better. Andre, thanks for joining. Jacob, very glad to be with you. Uh, and nice to see you, too. We've, Zencaster has this new video feature where, where you can actually look at each other while we're podcasting, so I don't just have your voice sort of ethereally beamed into my ears. I can actually look at your face and see if you're actually laughing at my jokes, which you probably won't. <laughs> it is very illuminating and actually one of the signs that we have a proper conversation. Yeah. Um, look, the, the, there's a lot of things we could talk about, but the first thing I wanted to ask is it's, it's been about a year since you came on the podcast, almost exactly, I think maybe 13 months technically. And, um, you know, the last time we talked, COVID-19 was just breaking out, but the U.S. was also full swing into election season, wasn't exactly clear who was going to sort of pull ahead in the presidential election. And I just wanted to ask you to take a step back and reflect about um, both the last year in American politics and the last four years in American politics from a Russian perspective. Does it feel like everything that's happened in the past year, the past four years from your perspective is just normal American democratic chaos? Does it feel like something is fundamentally broken when you look at the American political system? How do, how do you think about the last year and the last four years in American politics? From Russian standpoint, we don't consider what we observed for the last four years as a kind of uh, you know collapse and like dramatic chaos that somehow strategically changes American position in the world. Basically, American impact globally is based on four basic premises, uh, military preponderance, significant technological advantage, um, financial power in terms of the dollar as a major reserve currency, and uh, like the lifestyle, the soft power. I think only the, the latter has somehow eroded, but uh, if we observe all the other three, um, we see very slight changes in those predispositions. So from Russian viewpoint, it doesn't actually matter who, who leads the United States until those four major pillars are in place. Hmm. Um, but when we were talking yesterday, you did allude to the, the fact that you felt like the Trump administration in particular had done tremendous damage, uh, maybe even irreparable damage to the U.S.-Russia relationship, um, which maybe was not what folks were expecting. I think maybe people thought that the Trump administration was going to improve relations with Russia, although every U.S. president going back to Clinton has promised that. So do you feel like the Trump administration 
um, fundamentally broke anything in U.S. Russia relations in the long term, or it's just another chapter in this in this ever going story. Um, we can see the Trump and people around him as a part of the American establishment, like the hawkish one, the the one that that sees America first and tries to exploit weaknesses of uh, both adversaries and allies. Um, we, if we observe the long trend, we can imagine a group of people like them to come back in the White House in, in some foreseeable future, like in maybe five, 10 years. Um, they did inflict significant damage to Russian-American relations. Expectations were different when Trump first came. Um, his rhetoric was, was um, promising something. I personally was writing at the time that uh, we are entering an era of um, high unpredictability uh, because he is non-systemic political figure in American politics and uh, essentially he will try to ruin positions of his political adversaries internally and that can have a significant spillover to Russian-American relations. That is exactly what happened. Um, the major treaties were uh, broken. We are probably in the lowest point since the end of the Cold War. Russia drew closer to China. Um, significant suspicion toward any constructive initiative, in, initiative toward the United States is currently in Moscow. So there are very few players in Russia who would uh, opt and, um, you know, as Medvedev did in, in 2008, go toward the United States, ex, uh, having an expectation that something good can come out of it. So I think that is was uh, the, the most the most dramatic uh, experience of the last four years. Mm. Um, well, if, if Trump is a sort of unsystem or unsystemic politician, as you described him, Biden is sort of the polar opposite, has been in the system for, for certainly all of my life, probably all of your life as well. Um, you know, he's, he's been doing this stuff before both of us were around. Um, do, do you see a return to stability? I was actually, I was fairly pessimistic about Biden and U.S.-Russia relations in general because he was using that neoconservative ideological language. But I saw Blinken and Lavrov seem to have a polite, cordial meeting yesterday. It feels like the first time there's been some cordiality there uh, in months in the relationship. So are things more predictable going forward or is it just we're in kind of a, a weird state and for the next couple of years... Um, the hangover from the Trump administration is going to hang over U.S.-Russia relations. I was thinking about this, and I think it's really important. Uh, we actually have um, one of the YouTube videos at, at my channel. It's in Russian, uh, but uh, to the readers of Russian, I, I think it can be of interest. The thing is that those people in the Biden administration, they were the same people who propelled the first Perizagruska with Russia the first three that in, in, uh, in 2009 to uh, 2010. Um, so they had this experience of having both positive and then very negative relations with Russia during the Ukraine crisis. And uh, they are indeed systemic people. They are part of the deep-rooted establishment. And uh, they. this is in some way coming to normal in terms of the mainstream American foreign policy. So uh, the, the major outcome of this is that nobody currently in Washington believes that Russians did place Biden in the office. So no, um, this fear that we have a Manjurian candidate. And this means that we, we have an American president leading American foreign policy. And that's, that's good enough for us. 
so nobody will sabotage um, uh, what, what we can achieve with them. And uh, they basically have a much greater maneuver internally, while Trump White House was basically paralyzed, first of all, internally, and then in international arena. And um, I think that uh, we see some signs of uh, coming to common sense in, uh, in, in uh, what, what are American interests toward Russia. Uh, before the elections, there was this... Um, letter signed by 103 Russian experts, I think, who, who reasoned that uh, we need to come to our senses and figure out what are exactly American interests toward Russia. Because we cannot uh, supplement uh, a strategy with impulsive steps like sanctions. We need to figure out why. And uh, this is exactly what is happening now with the Biden administration. They appointed a person in the um, um, Department of Commerce, I think, uh, whose task is basically to make an inventorization of all the sanctions. Like, what did we do for all those four years? You know, how many of them? What are they destined for? Uh, are they, you know, working? Um, can we actually, you know, supplement or change something inside of it? And that, that's, that's, that's pretty okay with us. Um, I, I, I'm not that optimistic that we can, you know, go toward the positive uh, type of relations we had at some times during the last decades. But um, what we need now is predictability and stability, indeed. We need, to, we need to be able to trust each other that the other side can deliver mm. when we have a common interest, for example, like in Arctic or in Afghanistan or North Korea or like uh, in Syria, probably. And that was not the case during the Trump. So in this respect, his, his um, foreign policy was a complete ruin, particularly on, on, on the Russian direction. What, um, so we're, we're talking a little bit about um, what the U.S. wants out of, out of Russia in the bilateral relationship. But if I could turn the question around on you, um, what, what do you think Russia wants out of the relationship? And let's even make it a hypothetical. I mean, let's say you had a direct line to the White House right now and let's say you had a very pliant U.S. president who was willing to do whatever you said to fix um, U.S.-Russia relations or make things better. What, what would you say to him uh, or to her that would that would communicate what Russia wants and what Russia needs to see out of the relationship in order to move forward? Obviously, it won't happen because politics is going to prevent it. But just that analytically pure articulation of Russia's strategic interest. What is it right now, do you think, with the U.S.? Um, yeah, you're putting me, to, you know, to the wall basically with this question. It's 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 really significant. But um, to make it short and smart, I think we need to do a peace dividend two strategy. Hmm. You know, after the end of the Cold War, a lot of free resources uh, from the diminishing uh, military budgets were available. Were available, and uh, this led to a very significant period of growth. And um, I think this was, of course, very unique internationally period of time, but um, we can put forward an idea similar to the idea that we're currently exploring in the field of ecology. Like we need to come back to the uh, emission of gas of level of 1992. Let's do the same with the military budgets. Hmm. Let's, let's diminish them to the level of 1992. Because what last 30 years have showed that uh, basically war and this uh, military um, 
and nervousness doesn't lead anywhere. It doesn't help solve problems. And we have problems piling up, global problems. Um, you know, if, if we'll take all the military budget combined globally uh, for last 30 years, we could have solved all of the major problems without, you know, spoiling trillions, trillions really uh, on, on un politically unsuccessful and uh, pointless military enterprises. And uh, I think with the nuclear weapons and, uh, you know, cyber capabilities, we are basically doomed for peace. We cannot permit ourselves a global war because everybody wants to leave, you know, proliferate, everybody wants to feel feel good can, to consume you know all these things that that basically makes this uh, globalization working i cannot imagine a person in china france great britain united states or russia who would who would be able to press the button in, in, if if we'll you know be on the brink of the nuclear war uh, we had this experience in the 20th century several significant stress tests and I think several stress tests, even even in this century, like Ukraine crisis, Russia-Turkish crisis, uh, American-Chinese crisis, and uh, American-North Korean crisis, and 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 we see that in all of those instances, we passed those stress tests. So so uh, this can uh, you know help me to say very very forcefully that uh, war is like. Um, War would not work in, the, in in this century. So let's find out how to how to better better use the resources that we can uh, use. Yeah. yeah, Andre, you're you're uh, you're dangerously close to sounding like an idealist. Uh, I feel like I'm usually <laughs> the one who's making these sorts of arguments, but it's it's nice to know that you and I are on the same page there. And it also um, calls to mind. I just finished um, a book that was published in the U.S. I think. I can't remember if it was this year or the year before, but it, the title of the book is just 2034. And it sort of imagines a World War III scenario. And there was a lot of crazy stuff in the book, but, uh, and I don't want to spoil it for listeners or for you if you haven't read it already. Um, but basically it imagines that there is a nuclear exchange between China and the United States in the context of a war, um, you know, 10 to 12 years from now. And to your point, I couldn't imagine it getting that far. And maybe that maybe that's a failure of imagination. Maybe we're overestimating um, human nature and and the the um, the limited decisions that happen when when you do get into a conflict and when when both sides feel like their backs are against the wall. Um, but I'm I'm actually kind of relieved to hear you say that that sort of scenario is as unimaginable to you as it is to me. Even though I just read this U.S. book that was basically predicting it. <laughs> so. Well, we cannot blame people for good imagination, and, and and I think we need to you know very vividly imagine the consequences of possible nuclear exchange and they are the same basically they have been the same since the early 60s yeah um well let's let's maybe dive in on the pressure points um i would think that the to me the key pressure point in the u.s russia relationship and it's not really close and i'm curious to get your thoughts on this is ukraine and it sort of feels like if we could untie the ukraine knot if both sides could get on the same page about ukraine maybe all these other conflicts that you rightfully point out are accumulating on the periphery that the U.S. and Russia just have not been able to work together on because there is no trust and no goodwill on either side. I feel like if you could get to some kind of common understanding on the Ukraine issue, that maybe things would push forward. Um, and it seems to me that, I mean, the United, 
well, I'm, I'm not even going to say anything right there. D- do you feel like the Ukraine issue is the the center of gravity that needs to be solved for the U.S. and Russia to move forward? Or would you point somewhere else in the relationship to start with with repairing ties? I think Ukraine is the, one of the biggest issues on the Russian-American plate, but not the only one. And um, the like, it's an egg or 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 chicken question. Uh, do we need to solve first Ukraine, Russia-Ukrainian relations first, or do we need to first fix the Russian-American relations to fix the Ukrainian crisis? Because um, Ukraine is pretty independent uh, in, in terms of the ability to get attention and uh, to exploit its position um, in European security to, to, to draw this attention, both from Russia and the United States, to manipulate it uh, on some occasions. And um, like it, from our perspective, it's clear that they have several times staged provocations on the eve of a significant summits that involved like American and Russian presidents and um, like they play this this victim thing all the time but um, Ukraine is not in a vacuum like the 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 development of this crisis is uh, a direct consequence of unsolved European security architecture problem the Mm -hmm. you know enlargement of NATO the the spread of the uh, Western influence and then very fragile Ukrainian statehood where both parties the pro-russian pro-western parties they're basically competing with one another and were involving actively involving foreign interference into internal affairs of ukraine both western and russian and that eventually led to 2014 the this this implosion which uh, is a devastating blow to to ukrainian sovereignty in my respect because they're currently much less sovereign than they have been uh, like 10 years ago. And uh, this is uh, one of the questions that would not be easily solved uh, without Russian-American consensus. Mm. Whether Russia and the United States are eager to get this, uh, to get to the point of consensus, I'm not sure currently. Well, okay. Politicians are never eager for, for change, um, no. <laughs> or at least not normally. Um, I, I was wondering, I've, I've been trying to think about how to describe the Ukraine-Russia issue to clients and to, to perch readers. And um, I was wondering um, what you think of the analogy of Ukraine is to Russia as China is to Taiwan. And to put my cards on the table, what I'm really asking there is, um, even though I think there's a pretty stable status quo in the South China Sea with Taiwan, I don't see any U.S.-China conflict over Taiwan happening soon. I think all parties involved want to maintain the status quo. Still, though, China eventually wants to take back Taiwan. Maybe it's willing to wait four decades. Maybe it's willing to wait a century. But you know, any clear-eyed um, analyst has to has to understand that China eventually that views Taiwan as part of China and intends everything that it's doing is to eventually try and reincorporate Taiwan back into the People's Republic of China. Full stop. Even if the status quo will obtain for a while, is that true of Russia and Ukraine? Does Russia have that kind of historical memory or phantom pain of missing Ukraine as as something that used to be part of of Russia and is no longer and needs to be returned? Um, or is Russia different from China in the relationship with Ukraine that, as you say, is willing to respect Ukrainian sovereignty, might even prefer an independent Ukraine buffer state, as long as there's some agreement with the European security architecture and the U.S. security architecture about really no interference, don't put NATO forces in Kiev, all these other sort of things. So is the, where, where do you fall on that analogy? 
I think it is a good analogy. And uh, I submit that Taiwan is uh, more important to China than Ukraine to Russia, because Taiwan is basically at the core of all China foreign uh, relations and, and, and foreign connection, trade, economy, transport routes. Um, whole vector of, of Chinese attention is uh, to the Pacific Ocean. And if you put yourself in a Beijing and turn yourself toward the Pacific Ocean, the first thing you would see is Taiwan. Mm. It's basically just in front of you. And uh, this is a major headache for, for any Beijing government. And uh, I think they are very serious about Taiwan. And, and that's indeed would be one of the questions that, uh, like, you know, the, 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 the Caribbean crisis of the 21st century would possibly be around Taiwan. Uh, so I would not underestimate this thing. Um, Russia is uh, more relaxed toward Ukraine. It, its, its strategy pre-Ukraine crisis was to actually avoid Ukrainian you know, interference, avoid Ukrainian influence into Russia-European affairs. Russia was building alternative infrastructure, you know, pipelines, rail, railroads. Uh, Russia was diminishing the relation in the military industrial complex with Ukraine. Um, Russia cannot break the ties with Ukraine completely because uh, it is still, you know, a family matter. Uh, you know, almost every Russian family has a relative in Ukraine, like myself, for example. And um, uh, it's like, imagine Texas has broken from the United States like 30 years ago. And, but you still share borders and you still have relatives and, and you, you're you not foreign to them in, in, in the respect that, uh, you know, you shared se several centuries of history and uh, you still, you know, have have um, ideas, uh, some positive, some negative toward them. And you still have issues about some things like, for example, I don't know, uh, space space facilities of United States are still located in Texas or, or oil fields or military infrastructure, something like this. So it's a really complicated question. And, and uh, I would actually opt for Russia to be an island like United States, uh, you know, with no neighbors with, to, to share, to, to share a, a fate with. And um, that's, that's not the case with Russia. It has the longest land border on the planet. Is Russia, but so, I mean, if, I don't think the United States would tolerate Texas breaking off um, at any point in its history. So is, is it similar with Russia where, um, you know, maybe it doesn't have the power to prevent Ukraine from doing what it wants right now, but, you know, it's it's not an acceptable state of affairs from Moscow's perspective, or is it the sort of thing where it's okay, like, yes, we're in the same family, but there's room for different political structures. We just need to come to some kind of common agreement. Is it is it more on that front end, like the way the United States would try to treat a renegade Texas, or is it more um, more, more pragmatic? I think it's more pragmatic, and mm -hmm. I think that uh, it was basically Russia who and Russian elites who 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 broke the Soviet Union, who who wanted uh, independence for Russia, and they uh, perceived um, those relations uh, with with other Soviet republics as as burdensome for Russia. Um, but um, that was that state of mind in the 90s uh, that, you know, we need to break out. And um, I think that the pragmatism still dominates relations. Uh, Russia has its clear red lines in Ukraine. I think you mentioned some of them, like uh, no membership in NATO, no American military infrastructure, 
but generally uh, Russia would like to focus on itself. Uh, Russia would like to maintain security for Russian citizens on its own territory. That is like the biggest territory on the planet Earth, 11 hour bells, uh, you know, several European unions can, can be located inside uh, Russian territory. This is not an issue of, of territory. This is more of an issue of a Ukrainian crisis becoming a Russian internal political issue. Hmm. Like every time when there is a me media cycle uh, citing some law in Ukraine that is um, harming interest of Russian-speaking minority in that country, it becomes huge news. Like imagine Texas has uh, broke out and, and uh, locals are prohibiting using, I don't know, English. English, yeah. Let's say they yeah. were speaking Spanish or something. Yeah, yeah. And that would be that would be big, and you can earn a lot of points in in domestic politics if you you know defending uh, Russians abroad. Yeah, I think that's a great point. Not, not an issue of territory, but has become a domestic Russian internal issue. Um, and I, I want to turn to some uh, domestic Russia internal issues, but before we do, I, I just before we leave this topic in general, um, I take your point about not uh, not underestimating. Um, the situation in the South China Sea and not being too comfortable with the Taiwan situation itself. Um, certainly, there has been a lot of fear mongering here, especially in the United States, about the potential for a Chinese Taiwan military conflict. You've got major US military officials saying it's possible this decade, which I look at it and I just don't see that it's possible. But I mean, they're out there saying it. Um, I'll put you on the spot there. Do you feel like a China Taiwan military conflict is possible this decade? I certainly think past 2030, we might get in range of that. But for the next eight, nine years, do, do you see that as, as possible on the horizon? Maybe even, maybe it's a very, very small chance, but how do you react? As an analyst, I think we both um, should agree that everything can happen under, su under <laughs> some circumstances. Sure. So what should be the circumstances for China to, you know, take that very bold step and we can, you know, list those circumstances. Uh, it can be a miscalculation. It can be a provocation. It can be very forceful American presence. It can be a proclamation of Taiwan independence. It can be, you know, some things which we expect reasonable people would not do, but eventually this happens. Mm -hmm. Like in, you know, in, in Ukraine in February 2014, reasonable people should have not done, you know, a lot of things, and that could have uh, spared us of, of this crisis. And um, I think that uh, we need to be attentive to Chinese intentions and, and Taiwanese insecurity. And I think that we also need to consider that China didn't have, that China doesn't have significant strategic experience of using force on a large scale and mm -hmm. that it can uh, like it, it doesn't have this experience so its strategic culture in some ways isn't imperfect still and uh, the calculus be behind the decision can be very different from what we expect it to be <laughs> this was a very good lesson for us in the russian turkish crisis of 2015 i think we had this conversation in, in the previous podcast when we thought of turkey as a ordinary nato country which shares with us the same experience of uh, restraint, you know, mutual uh, understanding what are the, the, the stakes in this confrontation. And this was basically the major benefit of the Cold War, this strategic experience that we should refrain 
from provoking each other because we understand what the consequences can be. And Turkey is just very different country, you know, independent, strategically very agile, uses force ab- um, against every neighbor, including NATO ally Greece, you know, Cyprus, Syria, very active in, 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 in the Caucasus, Nagorno-Karabakh, Azerbaijan, Armenia. So, you know, shooting all sides. And uh, this strategic autonomy was was very un- unpleasant surprise for us. And uh, um, we miscalculated Turkey in this respect. And I, I think that something like this can happen to China also. Hmm. Well, that's a sobering thought. Um, I'll, I'll have to keep that in mind. Um, let's move on for a second and let's let's touch on some Russia domestic issues before we leave things. Um, you know, I don't know how often you get a chance to speak to an English listening audience. Obviously, I, I look at your videos on in Russian all the time and wish that I could understand Russian. Um, you guys need to get some maybe some English captions or something. Maybe we can help you with that. But um, <laughs> from that aside, just to say you have an English listening audience here primarily, and I hope an, un- an unideological one. I mean, folks are coming to this podcast because they don't want their political views confirmed. They want an understanding of what's going on. So I, I preface this next question with that in mind. Um, and I have to say that even so, you know, some of the listeners of this podcast, even myself, it's, it's, um, it's I don't want to say easy, but it's possible to understand Russia's point of view, to empathize with Russia's position, to see what Russia's strategic interests are. Um, but I wanted to ask about the whole business with Alexei Navalny, because I think that's one case where um, it breaks down, especially for an American observer trying to understand what's going on, because it just doesn't seem like it's that big of a deal. It doesn't seem like he's that big of a threat to the Russian state. It almost seems like by focusing on him so much, Russia's basically shooting itself in the foot. It's got Germany that wants to move forward with Nord Stream 2. It's got France that wants Poland and all these Eastern European countries to stop worrying so much about Russia and focus on the European Union, find a more pragmatic way to deal with Russia. But when you pick on an issue like Navalny, you're just you're hitting the one thing that the Europeans are going to have to react towards and the one thing that the Americans are going to have to react towards. You almost make a martyr out of him in a sense. So explain the logic behind um, the treatment of Navalny and why he's been elevated in such a way. Are, are we underestimating um, what what the Russian government views him as a threat towards? Is it just um, sort of a reflexive, instinctual reaction to somebody who's challenging central power in Moscow? Help us understand um, how the Russian government is treating Navalny and why it's taking such a hard line against him. I would put this issue in the uh, international context. Uh, he's bigger than Russian politics. And uh, I think the personality and um, able person like him, um, he found some attraction in being a player, a global player in the competition between Russia and the West. And uh, at some point, I think he started to cooperate with the um, with the I could generally call it uh, Western intelligence community. If you check the uh, uh, report by the, uh, I think it was an office of the National Intelligence and this annual. Uh, threat assessment that, that has been published recently. Mm-hmm. Uh, it has very good uh, language and interesting language. Like uh, there are top four threats, na- national threats, China, Russia, Iran, and North Korea. And uh, they analyze each country, implying that they have a leverage in what they call influence operations. Influence operations are those aimed at um, 
um, putting obstacles into internal affairs of other states to manipulate the you know be international behavior. Let us put some leverage into the um, you know. They assess that. Say Russia is thinking, why won't we put some leverage and and spoil some some things inside American politics and um, you know maybe uh, support some people in the Republican Party, Trump himself, and that would uh, divert attention of the American power from from getting to questions that that we don't want them to get. I think this this issue is um, reciprocally used in the uh, what those people uh, call uh, like the shadow part uh, of the international relations in one of the recent articles of um, uh, mr burns who is currently having uh, cia i think at that time he was still at, with the um with the carnegie right he, mm -hmm. he was head of carnegie mm -hmm. yes and uh, i think he he, he really um, properly observed that the competition between major powers is uh, getting from the situation of the hot conflicts, which they cannot permit to have between them, to this shadow arena where they use uh, information, manipulation, you know, these fake things, uh, digital activities, and interference in internal affairs as uh, some tool to, you know, outfox, outmaneuver. The competitor and um, Navalny, even though he indeed, you know, points out to some of the very pressing issues in Russian politics, like corruption and, uh, you know, things of uh, political stability, uh, inequality, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. He probably at some point has found himself uh, am amused by playing this grand geopolitics, and his. Standing outside of Russia is much, much bigger than inside Russia. If you'll see, like, what are, what exactly the consequence of, of his, this, you know, very bright uh, departure from, from Berlin to, to Moscow, like, they have been relatively, you know, negligible if you, if you assess it through the Russian internal politics issue. He is, like Gorbachev, much more recognized and respected in the West than in russia and um but the uh, the truth is that um, there is a significant uh, pressure uh toward the government in russia and uh, a constructive opposition wisely uses it and i think navalny also tried to use it and exploit it in in in, in some issues and um, strategically speaking he is more of the asset currently for spoiling things inside Russia. And um, it, it's very interesting why after he was jailed, there is no major leader of the opposition emerged. Hmm. Uh, like, is it a movement or was it just, you know, a spike of the emotions of provocation? Many things are still unclear for me, but I, I expect people to like those people who, you know, have budgets and, and do things uh, on those uh, influence operations. I would, in their position, if I would be, you know, managing those operations somewhere in the West, I would see Navalny as an asset, really. Like this thing can really trouble 
things in Russia. Why don't we use him? I think these similar tactics is used against China, like in Hong Kong, in 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 uh, Tibet, in uh, Uyghur. This uh, genocide uh, narrative. It, it's really significant currently, and uh, I. Pretty sure that uh, some of it, at least some of it, is poorly substantiated. Yeah, you you put your finger on on one of the hardest things to think about, um, and it has become particularly hard in the United States because it's obvious to me we're talking about Xinjiang and the Uyghurs now in China that you alluded to, and I, I think it's I think it's a good thing to bring up in the context of this conversation. It seems obvious to me that something is going on in Xinjiang. I don't know how bad it is. I haven't been to Xinjiang. Uh, nobody's really been to Xinjiang because China limits access on the ground pretty fiercely. I have said that if China wants to um, nip this problem in the bud, just just open up Xinjiang to a couple of Western reporters and let them do whatever they want, walk around. And if there's really nothing going on, great, you'll be done with the issue. But for a lot of reasons, China can't do that. Um, but to your point, um, the Xinjiang issue is doubly depressing because I think you're right that even if something terrible is going on there, and I happen to think something probably is going on there, the way that it is being used by politicians or even by celebrities or other folks for their own purposes and manipulating that suffering to give themselves a platform or to push their own political agenda, it's almost doubly depressing. And then you never actually get to the root cause, which is probably there are Uyghur suffering um, because of policies that are there right now. And there's going to be no discussion because it's all getting refracted through people using these issues. Um, so yeah, un unfortunately, I think oftentimes in, in these situations, um, all of the noise that comes around these conflicts actually prevents um, politicians on both sides who would like to find some kind of way to, to improve the situation from actually dealing with it because that noise affects them in such ways. And it sounds like you're saying there's a similar dynamic here with Navalny because so many people are using him or he is using his position or his platform. It's hard to actually deal maybe with, with some of the issues um, that in a normal context might be open for a conversation. Is that fair? Well, I think that uh, those several decades that passed since Cold War, we had several instances of those, uh, let's call them political martyrs, like Yulia Tymoshenko, who was jailed by, by Yanukovych, but then eventually miraculously, you know, is, is perfectly fine and, uh, you know, um, doing well and one of the leading political figure. Or this, this very, it's really a joke. Uh, this 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 Ukrainian journalist who staged his assassination <laughs> to get media coverage, and he did it for you know he did get news for one day, and then he resurrected the, the second day after all the articles have have you know appeared with the condolences and the proclamation that Putin did it and everything. Um, I don't know. Maybe I'm too cynical being in this profession for you know too long and. Uh, uh, but it's clear that we are in the middle of the very, very tense information warfare. And uh, it's really hard for people to navigate this thing, to distinguish what is truth and what is not. And uh, I, I really apologize and, and I really feel sorry that, um, you know, you need to get a training in, in a proper training in, in international relations analysis or proper training in the political analysis, including in, you know, dirty parts, you know, in shadow mm -hmm. parts, in, in the things that are, you know, instrumental and manipulative in nature to develop some sense of cynicism toward what you hear. And uh, it's really devaluating 
a lot of positive things that are going on uh, on the planet and, and, and you are skeptical, you are, you are observing things with uh, lack of enthusiasm. You're trying to see uh, like who benefits. And uh, unfortunately, that is what news did to us. Yeah. Um, before, before we leave this topic in general and, and maybe start closing out, um, since we last talked, uh, Putin has extended his term, or I, I forget what he did with the constitution to make sure that he can stick around for a while. So my, my age old question, every time we talk is, is there going to be a successor for Putin sometime soon? Do you see a scenario in which the Russian government evolves beyond its need for Putin or Putin's need for power? Um, do you feel like Putin is beginning to set a table for contingencies? I mean, he's, he's sort of getting up there in age. I'm sure he'd love to project the issue that he's going to live forever, but unfortunately none of us are going to live forever. Um, do you worry about what's going to happen after Putin? Just, I want to throw all those questions at you and see how you respond. I think that we need to focus more on the uh, people around Putin and who would succeed him. It's clear that the next Putin, I would put it this way, next Putin uh, is currently a living person, probably male, probably Russian, and uh, he is at the top of Russian leadership. And uh, he is under sanctions, no doubt. <laughs> and at the point that uh, inevitably, uh, you know, we will have a political transition, this person who at that point will be already 10, 15, maybe 20, well, not 20, 15 years under sanctions, what kind of person he would be? He would be a very different person from the, you know, young Putin who came in with the very positive perception toward the West. Uh, he, Putin at that time, he, he, he was amusing whether to Russia sh should join NATO. He spoke in German into, in, in, in German Bundestag, uh, saying that Russia is a part of Europe. Why don't we, you know, exploit this option? And, uh, this new generation of Russian elite that is currently coming to stage is, uh, very negative toward the West because they personally have suffered uh, they, didn't have an ability to pay medical bills somewhere in Europe, for example, because they are under sanctions. Imagine their mother had a stroke and, and they need, need to have a, you know, some, some, some medical attention and they could, couldn't provide it. Or their assets, financial or, you know, maybe uh, they, their kids have been in the foreign universities and had to evacuate because they were under, you know, intelligence surveillance or something like this. It's really dramatic change from what we had like 15 years ago, for example, 10 years ago even. And um, I would focus more not on the Putin and that he is, you know, bad for United States or for the West, but what kind of at attention, what kind of attitude the West wants from Russian elite and um, generally, because, you know, Russia is not ruled by Putin. He doesn't have this, you know, a PlayStation joystick with the, all the buttons, you know, uh, do this, do this, poison Navalny, you know, invade Ukraine. Uh, he operates in a very thick environment with a lot of top officials involved, you know, several hundreds, maybe thousands of uh, top level bureaucrats, uh, state officials, um, parliamentarians, um, ministers, top businessmen, all of them. It's a significant bulk of Russian elite that is currently under pressure and uh, i don't think that uh, if sanctions were were destined to change the attitude of those people toward putin i don't think that they deliver 
uh, yeah, I love the metaphor of the PlayStation joystick. Although maybe Putin himself is the PlayStation joystick. I'm not sure. I'm not so sure. Um, rather than him being able to use it. Um, what what else uh, before we close? Is there anything on your anything I didn't ask you that you think we should be talking about? Anything you want to throw back at me? Anything else on your mind? Um, I'm actually curious about the more long term perspective from the um, uh, American analyst, and uh, I consider you to be one of the very in depth, uh, able to observe things from the in depth and the long term perspective. Um, I would probably submit that the United States is still in some ex extent lacking a strategic experience of mistake, of significant mistake, of maybe significant failure. Like United States, unlike Russia, didn't have a, um, a vital military blow that, that puts an existence of a country uh, you know, to a question. And that was very educative, very formative experience for Russia. Like what would, what it would mean to you know maintain sovereignty? How how much can you sacrifice to maintain sovereignty? And that is an important a formative experience again for Russia. United States never had this this experience, and that's very good in terms of you know saving lives and saving property, GDP and all the things. But um, it makes um, it makes a country feel that the world is very secure abundance place and you can experiment and you can do basically whatever you want without you know uh, a threat of um, being punished for it or somehow affected by the consequences of your doing um, do you think it's uh, one of the you know driving navigating forces in, in american foreign policy and uh, can you actually import an experience like this because I think the brilliant American intellectuals in international relations in the mid 20th century, uh, like Morgenthau, like Kissinger, uh, like Brzezinski, some of them were basically imported European experience. Mm -hmm. What do you think? Well, you could, <laughs> well, first of all, certainly, thank you for saying those nice things about me. I feel the same way about you. It's why I keep, uh, keep talking to you and consider you a friend as, as well as a colleague. Um, so the, my first sort of cheeky answer to your question is, I mean, the experience can certainly be imported. It might need to be imported with 10 aircraft carriers and a large amphibious <laughs> landing force from some American enemy. Like, of course it can be imported. I'm not sure the U S would ask for it. Um, but, uh, but this goes back to your point about you wishing Russia was an Island. I mean, U S foreign policy is littered with mistakes and lost wars over the past half century. Um, Vietnam, uh, Iraq, Afghanistan, um, whatever the heck we're doing with Venezuela and with uh, North Korea and with Iran, it's, it's all a bucket of failures. And uh, the United States just keeps doing what it's doing. Um, and I think part of that, especially now, is reflective of just deep internal disagreements at the domestic level about what the United States is supposed to be doing. Um, the United States goes through these periods where it can't really decide what kind of country it wants to be itself. And you get these really fractious internal political debates. Um, I don't think it's a coincidence that probably the biggest failure of American foreign policy in Vietnam in the 60s happened in a similar climate to the one that's happening in the United States today with these culture wars and both sides not thinking that the other side is acting in good faith, not being able to have those conversations. So I think that gets reflected outward. Um, but I think also to your point, there's just a lack of strategic imagination in U.S. foreign policy. 
Um, I'm an independent analyst, obviously. I'm not inside the government. But I think one of the things um, that Trump was right about, and unfortunately, he didn't follow through on it, but he talked about how it's a swamp. It's just a big bureaucracy. Nobody's thinking about different ideas. There is no meritocracy. It's who you know and how long you spend in the system. And 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 you know if you do X, Y, and Z, then you're going to have a corner office in this bureaucracy. And it doesn't actually matter what your thoughts are. And, and it's not rewarding that long-term strategic perspective. Um, I guess the other thing to say there is, though, is that... Um, most democracies, especially larger democracies that have large populations, have trouble with long-term strategy. Because if you're going to change governments every four years or every eight years, or even every two years, if you have a big swing um, in legislative issues, it's hard to think long-term. You have certain things that you want to be able to push through immediately, and you leave the foreign policy stuff till the end. And then when you can't do anything else domestically, oh, we'll start some Israeli-Palestinian negotiations, or oh, let's put some sanctions on North Korea because uh, I need to feel like I'm doing something. So yeah, I, th I think that um, the United States is sort of um, predisposed to short-term thinking, um, and I, I don't see that changing in any in any fundamental way. But I also do think that there's a, a history of, of United States strategic thinking long-term. I mean, if you look at, I mean, even before World War II, when you think about Roosevelt's, both Roosevelt's and how they were thinking about it and the world that they saw ahead of them, there's a long tradition of, of the United States being able to think that way, even even into the, the 70s. I mean, Richard Nixon was a was an asshole is the technical term and also um, but was also a very brilliant man. If you look at the way he talks about how he saw the world evolving, he's the first one to talk about a multipolar world. Everything he did in terms of repairing relations with China, trying to get out of Vietnam, all this other stuff was because he saw exactly what was happening and he actually positioned the US pretty well. If he hadn't been such a jerk, might, maybe he would be remembered uh, to history differently. So um, I don't think it's all hopeless. Um, but it was, um, it's actually somewhat frustrating for me with the Biden administration, because you really do have an old hand who's just going back to the same old playbook and the same old people and the same old ideas. And you can see it all playing out. There is no recognition, um, that the world has actually changed and the United States has to change along with it. Um, probably as has happened before, we'll have to reach the crisis point and then we'll change really, really fast all of a sudden. And everything will feel really rushed and hurried. It doesn't have to be that way. I mean, we, we can think long-term if we want to, and there are plenty of analysts besides me who are, are trying to move the conversation in that direction. Um, but, you know, it's, it's, it's hard. As, as you know yourself in Russia, it's, it's hard to change that conversation from the outside, especially when, I mean, bureaucracies have lives of their own. Like, they, they move at their own pace. It's very slowly. They don't like change. New ideas are not great. So, you know, you're fighting upstream there. But that's probably not a comforting answer for you. Thank you for sharing. Well, I think that uh, we need to ask those questions and uh, it's really challenging all the time. Even though I believe that human nature is the same since the you know ancient Greeks and uh, basically Fukidides uh, wrote brilliantly what drives people to fight each other. Um, I always have this temptation, let's you know stress test this idea and it never fails. <laughs> yeah. I guess the the one before we close, I guess the one sort of silver lining or 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 the thing that I think could be different, and you alluded to it before with with the beautiful idea of peace dividend too. Um, climate change is coming. Maybe it's coming in ten years. Maybe it's coming in thirty years. I'm not sure, but it's coming, and it's coming for all of us, and it's coming for all of us, no matter what our nationalities are. Uh, it might be better for some countries than others. I think Russia actually is probably going to do fairly well with climate change if you look at the maps, at least in the short term. Um, but you know, climate is changing, and that is the one global issue 
that I feel like maybe it could outweigh all of the fears and all of the suspicion, because the only way we're actually going to tackle what's going on with climate is if we work together. And if nations put aside some of their differences and are able um, to create long-term strategies, articulate clear goals, realistic goals that can that can be achieved without completely sacrificing economic growth, um, you know, maybe climate change is the thing that we can hang our hat on. And maybe it becomes the crisis that allows nations to deal with each other in, in dealing with an issue. But um, there's more than a little naivete and optimism, I think, in that hope. Um, I, I do think it's on the on the board, but probably the more likely scenario is we're going to all continue doing the same things we were doing before, and then there'll be a crisis and there'll be winners and losers, and it'll be unfortunate. But but maybe in climate change, we have some basis um, for getting out of uh, out of the human nature that you described. Amen. <laughs> okay, Andre, thank you so much uh, for coming on the show. We'll look forward to having you back soon. And I hope at some point soon when COVID is a, is a thing of history, we'll see each other again in person. Jake, thank you very much. Always right. intellectual pleasure. <laughs> Cheers. Thanks for listening to the latest episode of the Perch Pod. I think that's about all you need to hear from me. A reminder to check us out at perchperspectives.com. You can check out our free newsletter um, or you can schedule a free call with us to talk about the geopolitical services that we provide to companies and to investors. Um, also, if you haven't already, check out latampolitic.com. Um, that is, let me just spell it for you now here because it's spelled a little weird. That's L-A-T-A-M-P-O-L-I-T-I-K.com. That is our $5 a month um, newsletter on the geopolitics of Latin America. It is published in both Spanish and English. So you can choose which language you want to uh, engage with. Um, I'm biased, obviously, but I think it's really, really good. Um, last but not least, uh, wherever you listen to podcasts, it helps us immensely if you leave a rating leave a review or a comment of this podcast, or even share it with your friends. As always, you can also write to us directly at info at perchperspectives.com. I read and reply to everything that comes through. So whether you have thoughts about um, what you had for breakfast, a great book that you read, or you want to talk more about the things that Perch does, maybe you're not sure if we can help you or not, just drop us a line. Happy to, to be in touch and have a virtual coffee. Okay. Otherwise, thanks again for listening. Please spread the word about Perch Perspectives and the Perch Pod, and we'll see you out there.